In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, we know that the godly are those who trust in your righteousness rather than their own. You are our glory. The light of your countenance is your righteousness that covers all our sin. Give us a calm and quiet faith to entrust ourselves to you when we are frustrated by those who attack our faith and the gift of your righteousness. Teach us to commend ourselves to you in prayer and to lie down and sleep in the confident peace of your forgiveness. For you alone are the God of our righteousness, and you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, our Bible verse today is uh, beautifully aligned with our Bible class for today. So we'll take up the congregation at prayer and this verse. And as we do, we remind you that this is the third week of three in the congregation at prayer meditations upon the sacrament of the altar. We have been hearing catechism stories, particularly Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, chosen to correspond with the Lord's Supper in some way. The second readings for those days also tie into the first reading, uh, the narrative from, from the Bible story. This week, the new material in the catechism uh, is who receives this sacrament worthily. So, it becomes a review of the essence of the sacrament, that it is Christ's true body and blood, a review of the words of institution, and then the last question, who receives this sacrament worthily? Let's speak that together. Who receives this sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. But that person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. But anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared. For the words for you require all hearts to believe. So once again, just as in the question about the benefits of the Lord's Supper and how those benefits can possibly be in the sacrament. It rests upon that phrase, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So also this week, worthy participation in the sacrament requires faith in those words. To have faith in those words means to have faith in the gospel. To have faith in Christ. What is it, therefore, that creates faith, that creates repentance and trust in Christ? The Word of Christ, the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing. So in the Lutheran confessions and in the constitutions of Missouri Synod congregations, at least, 
uh, confessional congregation, con congregations and ordination vows. It talks about administering the sacraments according to Christ's institution. And to administer the sacraments according to Christ's institution does not mean merely the earthly elements of bread and wine. It does not mean merely the words of Jesus being spoken over them, our Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed and so forth. But the right administration of the sacrament also requires catechesis and preaching. Otherwise, communicants will not know why they're coming to the Lord's Supper, what it's for, what it is, what its benefits are, and how they are to receive it. So that catechesis and preaching not only precedes the Lord's Supper in the sense of catechizing someone towards confirmation and First Communion, but it also is embodied in the divine service itself. What I mean by this is sermons must be preached at a celebration of the Lord's Supper. It is not apostolic to have the Lord's Supper and have no preaching. So when I go to shut-ins, I am always preaching, reading the gospel for the day, and I am preaching a sermon to them on the basis of that gospel. And then we have the confession of sins, absolution, prayer, the words of institution, and the distribution of Christ's body and blood. You may have heard me mention this before in uh, the Roman Catholic tradition. They will have Eucharistic ministers, which are not ministers at all. What they are is waiters. And they will come to hospitals, and they'll pop in the door. Maybe they've known from the uh, hospital ledger who's identified as Roman Catholic, and they'll pop in, body of Christ? Sure. And then they'll distribute the consecrated host and then pop out. That is not administering the Lord's Supper according to Christ's institution. Christine, you look, got that look on your face. Okay. So the right administration of the sacrament involves everything that surrounds it how the divine service is done, and particularly that preaching sermons must precede it. More about that in a moment. So that's how one becomes worthy, because that's how faith is fostered, how faith is created. So we know our sin, we know our Savior, and we desire the sacrament. Our verse for the week is, oh, I didn't put the reference up there. It's 1 Corinthians 11.26. And I left some space up there for a reason, but let's first say it together. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes.
you could say until he comes, uh, NKJV has till he comes, it matters not. Okay, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, so it is still the sacramental union. The bread gives to us the body of Christ. That's why it's called the host. And in the cup of wine, we receive the blood of Christ according to his words. But this phrase here, you proclaim the Lord's death, I wanted it on one line because the Greek verb here, kategelitai, same exact spelling, can be translated you proclaim as you're commonly used to hearing it translated. Or, and this is a legitimate translation, you are to proclaim. where the verb is in the imperative. I don't like how that red shows up. So let me try this one. There we go. So this is the imperative. It's a command or a directive. And if you look at the context of 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11 in which St. Paul is catechizing the congregation in Corinth about abuses at the Lord's table, the imperative form makes logical sense because what was suffering in Corinth is a lack of catechesis. People were coming to the Lord's Supper in impenitence, in unbelief, without contrition, without repentance. You had members in the congregation coming to the Lord's table, pushing and shoving, like kids bellying up to the uh, Culver's custard bar for their free custard. I'm on it, I'm on it, okay? It's why Paul said, and some were then getting drunk at the Lord's table. Paul says, what, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? So arrogance, pride, impenitence, lack of understanding, drunkenness at the Lord's table. They needed catechesis and preaching to call them to repentance and faith. Paul says, when you come to the Lord's Supper, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. What does he mean? He doesn't mean that when they gathered together, they weren't supposed to come for the Lord's Supper, but they had turned it into something completely different from what Christ had instituted. So I receive from the Lord, if you want to um, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. A number of things to highlight. In chapter 10... Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So 
Clearly, the real presence of Christ is highlighted in the Old Testament. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also did. All right. So then if you go over to verses, uh, I'll pick it up at verse uh, 17. For we being many are one bread and one, uh, no, excuse me, verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, fellowship of the blood of Christ? Answer, yes. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Answer, yes. And we had that verse earlier on, the first week in the congregation at prayer in the Lord's Supper. Again, extolling the real presence of Christ's body and blood, and that we are in fellowship with Christ's body and blood. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar. Yeah, so if you eat of the sacrifices, that is an indication of confessional fellowship with that altar. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Well, no, however, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. That's called altar fellowship. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And of course, no, they're not. So moving ahead to verse, chapter 11, verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. So if we got together on a Sunday morning, you know, preaching takes too long. We're just going to have some uh, bread and wine as much as you like. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Which, of course, preaching, catechesis, the call to repentance, would counter. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Again, he's not saying you shouldn't but they had turned it into something that was no longer the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So clearly, the Lord's Supper was not being administered there in the congregations of Corinth according to Christ's institution. Now he gives that institution to us. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken or given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So how do we remember him? It's through preaching and confessing. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, kategelatai. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, without contrition and faith, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. He's talking about spiritually sick and the sleep of death where they've lost their faith. So those are the pertinent passages here about our discussion today about the divine service and um, aberrant practices in the church today, believe it or not, the, the liturgical practices of the church are, are grounded in some realities concerning the doctrine of the Lord's Supper that are very important for us. So I'd like you to take out that... Oh, let me say one other thing. To translate it this way is not wrong or a mistake. Do you understand? Because there is, there is a, a, a very real sense in which the very act of coming to divine service, confessing one's sins, praying for the Lord's forgiveness on the basis of what Jesus has done, kneeling together at the Lord's table to receive his body broken and his blood shed, there's a very real sense in which the action itself proclaims the Lord's death. So it's almost like you've got this lovely double entendre here. I do think that St. Paul, given the context of 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, is emphasizing, yeah, they're to proclaim the Lord's death, but they are to proclaim it. It's to be preached. Otherwise, there can be no worthy reception. If you like this, I'll just take this off here because I have to get at the altar. Now, in the diagram before you, on the, sh the handout, it is an attempt to get you to think of the divine service by looking at the big picture, okay? It's easy to lose the forest for the trees. What do I mean by that? Okay, hymn of invocation, preparation, rite, confession, absolution, intro it. Kyrie, glory and excelsis, salutation, collect, Old Testament reading, gradual, epistle, Alleluia verse, Holy Gospel, Nicene or Apostles' Creed, Hymn of the Day, Sermon, Offertory, uh, Prayer of the Church, Preface, Proper Preface, Sanctus, Verba, Lord's Prayer, word, uh, 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 the Pax, Agnus Dei, Distribution, Distribution Hymns, Post-Communion Canticle, Benedictamus Benedict and him to depart. Whoa. Okay, now I just, I just gave you all of that 
parts as parts, you know, the, remember the, the, the commercial uh, about from Wendy's hamburgers or whatever. But it's easy to get your nose flat up against the order of service and miss what's really going on. John. Well, the intervenient chant is what it was named before the liturgical reforms named it the Alleluia verse. Okay? And intervenient, transitioning from the epistle for the day into the gospel for the day. So whether it's called the intervenient chant and this particular setting of propers that we're using and according to the one-year series, it calls it that particularly during Lent because there's no hallelujah. In either case, it is preparatory, anticipatory for the gospel for the day. That's why we stand. Okay? Um, Polly. I just want to know, does tract mean the same thing? Yes, tract is the same thing, essentially. Okay. All right. But in the spirit of not wanting to lose the forest for the trees, the divine service, that's the heading. That means whose service is it and to whom? It is God's service, divine, and it is to us, chiefly. I mean, there's, just, there's things that we do in our offerings and our song of praise and so forth where we are returning in thanksgiving to the Lord, but the line of direction is his service to us is what engenders any service of love to one another or any offerings to God. The second subhead is the Lord's preaching and the Lord's supper. By Lord there, we're talking about the Lord Jesus. So the idea in the church Catholic is that Jesus is here. He's the one preaching, and he's the one who is the host at the Lord's table. Not only the host, but the food itself. Notice how that connects with his sacrifice upon the cross. He is both the high priest who offers the sacrifice and the sacrifice himself, the hymn that we'll sing in uh, Eastertide, I forget when, but at the Lamb's High Feast, Christ the victim, Christ the priest. Hallelujah. So you think about the divine service, the Lord's preaching, the Lord's Supper, and then there are two focal points indicated by the circles. The Holy Gospel for the day. Today it was the stronger man who binds the strong man, Satan. And the words of institution, but take this home with you. You can write in there, Holy Gospel. Because there is no, we talk about gospel in a nutshell, I know that Sometimes John 3.16 is used, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But this is pure gospel, the gospel in a nutshell. Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. My body for your maggot sack of sin and death. Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So, that gospel, in the words of institution, is fixed. 
like a fixed star. The gospel for the day, and they, they orbit throughout the church year, the works of Jesus in the festival half of the church year, and then the ministry of Jesus in the non-festival half that gives growth to the church. Those gospel readings change every day, uh, every week, but they orbit around that fixed star, my body for you, my blood shed for you. Okay? Notice how it's common sometimes for people, liturgiologists, to talk about the service of the word and the service of the meal. And I'm not going to quibble too much, except I don't care for it. I don't care for it as well because how can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking, but the words written here. You take away the words, there's no sacrament. There's no body and blood, there's no forgiveness. You take away the Lord's preaching, there's no right reception, worthy reception of the Lord's, uh, of the Lord's Supper. So the word is the focal point in both the service of the word and the service of the meal. That's why I just pre prefer to call it divine service, and it is all of a piece. And the two focal points are the gospel for the day and the gospel that remains unchanged in wording. It is a fixed star, the words of institution. How, how does that fit with the practice of... Uh, those who are not yet admitted to the altar leaving prior to the sacrament in the early church. Yeah. Uh, in the, the practice that Matthew is referring to is where in the early church, everyone could participate in the service of the word because it was catechesis preparing them, in the case of adult converts, for their baptism and reception at the Holy Communion. So they would be then, it's still preparatory for the Lord's Supper. They just have not yet, like in some cases, been baptized. So the deacons would be told by the presiding minister, the doors, the doors, and those who were not yet communing, because they had not yet been baptized and fully catechized, were ushered out. Hence the term, closed communion. It really was closed communion. And the placement of the creed after they were ushered out was a confessional statement that said everyone who is partaking confesses this common faith. Okay. So I hope that that helps. Okay. All right. Um, then in here, I have the sermon is kind of in a triangle. It's supposed to give you the idea of an arrow to the words of institution. So if you think about this morning's sermon, um, utilizing uh, mostly the epistle, although referencing the gospel, Jesus is the strong man who teaches us and catechizes us into the love of God. And his love never fails. He is our spiritual father. So who are we receiving then in the sacrament? The point 
then of preaching is to draw us to the Lord's Supper. So that's why the sermon in there is, is the, the way it is. Um, then you have the five pillars of the divine service, Kyrie, Gloria, Credo, Creed, Sanctus, and Agnus Dei, in that order. Uh, Kyrie is Greek. It means Lord. Kyrie lays on, Lord, have mercy upon us. That is the most fundamental prayer of the penitent Christian. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Because everything that we need, forgiveness of sins, life, salvation, daily bread, it all comes from the hand of the Lord out of his mercy. At the end, right before the distribution, is the Agnus Dei. That's Latin, Agnus Lamb Dei of God, Lamb of God. O Christ, thou Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. So the general prayer for mercy to the triune God at the beginning of the service in the Kyrie finds its specificity, the source of that mercy, in the Lamb of God. And then we receive the Lord's Supper. The Gloria and the Sanctus are songs of angels that we participate in. Or, to say it a different way, the liturgy of heaven that we participate in. So the Gloria is based upon the angel song at the birth of Christ, where the Son of God, conceived and born of the Virgin Mary, is laid in the manger, which is a feeding trough, in the town of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. No wonder we sing the Gloria with them at the service of the Lord's preaching and the Lord's Supper, for the same virgin-born Son of God is there lying upon the altar. The Sanctus combines a number of biblical narratives. In the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, for example, the high priest would take the blood and the water from the sacrifice and sprinkle it between the cherubim, you look on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat to make payment for sin, and then he would come out to the congregation and sprinkle the blood and water upon the congregation for the forgiveness of sins. During that time, the, the liturgy called for the singing of the Sanctus, which is Latin for holy, the Tris Hagion, threefold holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, which is God of hosts. Uh, the whole earth is full of your glory. The Gloria in excelsis, the glory of God at the birth of Jesus. Now here the glory of God is seen in that heaven is opened up to us in the body and blood of Jesus that is given in the Lord's Supper. So you've got that song going on, part of the liturgy. And in Isaiah 6, and we have the hymn in the Luther chorale service, Isaiah Mighty Seer, in days of old, it recalls how Isaiah saw this vision of heaven. And in the vision of heaven, he saw the angels singing antiphonally, that means responsibly back and forth, holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. And for Isaiah, he was blown away not only because it was angels and heaven was open, 
but it's also because they were singing the same liturgy, textually speaking, as was part of the temple worship with the Day of Atonement. Heaven is open. So look at what's going on. In the Lord's Supper, heaven is open to us, and we are in communion with the triune God in the body and blood of Christ given and shed for our forgiveness. The third narrative, then, is on Palm Sunday, the Passover Psalm 118, which was prayed at the table for the Passover celebration, is what the pilgrims sang, spoke, shouted to Jesus when he came into Jerusalem. Hosanna, which means save now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that Passover psalm they applied to Jesus. Little did they realize how absolutely accurate they were because in just five days, the true Passover lamb would be sacrificed. The Sanctus is the oldest canticle in the five canticles because it goes way, right back into the Old Testament church's worship. And then the proper prefaces, which are seasonally before it, are some of the most uh, ancient texts within the liturgy. So you've got those four canticles. Creed, notice that's in the middle. It occurs in our service either right after the gospel or right after the sermon. This is where, in answer to Matthew's question, the placement of the creed historically, if you, if you did the excusing of the people who were not yet confirmed and communing, it becomes a closed communion confessional statement and confession of the sacred mysteries. Okay, so there you have that. Now, I'm, we went through Paul's catechesis. Let me talk to you about the, the lectern is the place from which the Holy Scriptures are read. The pulpit, and it's different in size usually, represents the authoritative office of the word by which Jesus calls us to repentance and renewed faith to receive him rightly in the supper. The altar, and this is in Lutheran tradition and in Roman Catholic tradition, represents the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross for our salvation and becomes the table of the Lord from which he feeds us with his body and blood. And the idea of the table of the Lord is uh, a phraseology used by the Apostle Paul. But in other traditions of Protestant order, the altar is less about the sacrifice of Christ and more about the prayers of the congregation. So many of you may recall, even in Lutheran churches, let's say there's no no Lord's Supper on the altar. The missile stand is front and center. And this emphasizes the idea of the sacrifice of prayer and praise. That's not our tradition, actually. We talk about the liturgy. There are sacramental acts and sacrificial acts. The sacramental acts are when the pastor, in the stead and by the command of Christ, and it's typically the presiding minister, speaks the absolution, 
prays for the congregation in the salutation, the Lord be with you, reads the words of Jesus in the gospel for the day, proclaims the Lord's death in the words of institution over the bread and wine, consecrating them to be the body of Christ. Notice, he's facing the congregation. Um, in the early church, altars were tables, both preaching and celebration of the Lord's Supper was done from the table, but it still signified the sacrifice of Christ. So we move the missile stand here to allow the altar to function in its um, liturgical basis. The, so the sacramental, again, Christ to the people, the sacrificial parts are our confession of sins, our prayers, our thanksgiving to God, etc., where we face the altar, and the pastor signals that by his posture as well, whether he's facing or whether he is, um, has his back to the congregation. Now, in the, I'm going to move this off of here for the time being. It's called a missile stand, not because it fires rockets. <laughs> um, missile, missilette, that's where it has the, the liturgy of the day, the orders of the day. So this is called a burse. It is like a purse. It typically has linens in it. In congregations, which is not done so much anymore, but if they're, the singing of the offertory would mean the bringing of the gifts forward, bread, wine for use in the sacrament, and the linens to vest the altar, and they were put in the verse. So we have an extra purificator. I don't think I put that down on the sheet. Purificator is a linen napkin for wiping the chalice or any spills. So the next item, and that, that verse is in the color of the season, which doesn't always happen, but it's nice in our new sets. In 2010, we had that. This is called the chalice veil, again, in the color of the season. And this is called the pall. It is a board, stiff board, covered on both sides with linen with the cross in the center. I'm going to take this off for right now also. The plate is called the paten upon which uh, the bread is placed. And I'm going to put that back here for the moment. Here's a purificator placed over the chalice, which is what this is. Our chalice has a cross in the front. And then there is the corporal. Now this is not this kind of corporal that gives you the salute but from corpus, meaning body. So the body and blood of Christ is put on top of the corporal. Uh, if there is no Lord's Supper, the corporal isn't here. But you can see there's a cross in the center of the corporal. That is tradition. We, for utilitarian purposes, have the holy piece of plastic, but that's... <laughs> 
That's, that's only to guard it, uh, the fair linen, which is what this is called. And the fair linen uh, really signifies the righteousness of Christ. Sometimes it's thought of as the burial cloth of Jesus. But the fair linen is that which, which covers the altar. And I want you to notice there are five crosses, one embroidered, one in each corner, and one in the center. The crosses on the corners represent the wounds in Jesus' hands and feet. And the cross in the center signifies how his side was pierced, out of which the commodities of blood and water flowed from Jesus' side for our atonement. Um, Paraments, I didn't put those down, but they are usually in the color of the season. An altar may or may not have paraments. It's just a matter of local tradition. But the fair linen has this. So what you can think about this, at the seminary, uh, I got into this because I, I was the sacristan for a number of years, which is the guy that takes care of the altar, except I needed Beth's help because... Um, in addition to laundering the linens, they had to be ironed. And we're grateful that this is actually not linen, but that it is a fabric that doesn't wrinkle as, as easily as linen does. And Florence Schmidt selected it, and she uh, embroidered the crosses on the fair linen. But uh, at the seminary, the altar... I don't know, it's something like eight feet long, three feet on each side, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. It was like 14 or 15 feet long. Uh, that was a, and it was linen. So to, uh, to iron that was a piece of achievement, okay? All right, so then what happens is when the altar is vested, you have, we just, like I said, put that on for two utilitarian pieces, uh, uh, uses. And then here's the corporal. That cross is placed over the cross on the fair linen. So it's right in the center. And then upon the cross in the center, where the blood and water flowed out of Jesus' side, there is the chalice placed. And then the purificator, and then the paten, and then comes the pall. It's P-A-L-L, -L, like in funeral pall, it is not P-A-U-L, which means little. And then the chalice and paten are vested with the chalice veil, which is in the color of the season. And ours are of the right length to match the height of the chalice with its paten and pall so that it hangs nicely. And then the burse with extra linens goes on top of that. And the missile stand for the liturgy to be used by the presiding minister 
typically uh, sits to the left. And so when you go around the backside, freestanding, it is on the left. Um, what we have done here, this, this is called the post-communion veil. Again, it has, it has a cross on it. Nearly all of the linens do. This is the third permutation of our altar. There used to be, originally, you'd come up three steps, and there was an altar rail up here all the way across. It only accommodated about half to two-thirds of what our current communion rail accommodates. Then there was a second permutation where there was a U-shaped altar, uh, a communion rail, excuse me, and then communicants would have to come up the steps, surround the altar, kneel, receive Christ's body and blood, be dismissed, leave, and then a new group came up. So it increased the length of time uh, it took to do the distribution. And when Pat Karras stumbled with her Parkinson's disease on the step and cut open her cheek when she, and bent her glasses when she fell into the communion rail coming up, uh, that was the catalyst for this arrangement. Not that someone can't fall here, but it allows for you to not uh, have to walk up steps. So because of then having this, uh, the freestanding altar, Luther did advocate wanting to see the bread and see the wine held forth to the congregation and the words clearly spoken. Um, so that is the practice that we have here. It's, it's not wrong to have an altar against the wall but he definitely wanted the crucifix above the altar, um, above the sacrament. And he was a big proponent of showing forth the body and blood of Christ with Jesus' words. So because we have our, our rear altar serves kind of as a credence table, which is a table that is used for additional elements, uh, the ciborium is for the bread. A host box is for extra. And then the flagon for the wine. And then there are a series of cruets, cup cruets and half cup cruets, as well as one for water. Um, why the different numberings? We try to consecrate only the amount that we will need so that we have virtually nothing left over. If there are a few consecrated hosts, a half a cup of consecrated wine, then it's consumed during the service. So we don't have a monstrance or a tabernacle. Uh, that's what, how we do it. And although this is called a post-communion uh, veil, we use it at the beginning so that the rear altar functioning as a credence table does not visually compete with the focal point of what we have here. That's just our local uh, custom. One other thing I wanted to mention, when this was reconfigured, uh, there were intentional things done uh, with the geometry. 
that are subtle, you may not realize it, but subtle things can have a profound impact. The size of the altar is such that the horns of the altar, which would be here and here, follow the contour of the, the shape of the chancel steps, culminating at the communion rail here on both sides. The number four, and the number is associated with the earth, the number 40 is associated with pilgrimage. So the 40 days and 40 nights that the rain came, the 40 years in the wilderness, children of Israel, the 40 days Jesus Lenten fast when he was tempted by the devil. So if you look at the altar rail, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten posts, each post of which has four uh, supports for 40. So our food in the wilderness of this world is the Lord's body and blood that we all gather around. I'd hope to have about 10 more minutes, but um, any quick question? or Because I know Kathy wants to. Yes, Bob. How well is this taught in both SEMS today? How well is this taught in both SEMS today? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I'm not there. I, I don't know. Okay. Paul? Just this week I saw a picture of an altar and a pulpit, which was essentially one piece of furniture. Uh, the preacher stood on a platform uh, uh, behind the altar part uh, to preach, and, and the absolute rear of it there was like a tower. I wonder if you'd ever seen such a thing, oh, yes. what the background yeah, was. There is, there is a um, tradition in the architecture of some of our Lutheran churches where that is indeed the case. So you have word and sacrament held together. Oftentimes they'll have the font then in, in the center so that you'll have the place of preaching, baptism, and the Lord's Supper all in alignment. Yeah. So that's the difference between liturgical customs. Um, what I wanted to show you in the diagram, particularly with the Lord's preaching and the Lord's Supper, was the theological underpinnings to, um, to historic uh, worship. Okay, Nancy? Why have all the churches um, kind of gotten rid of the red carpet coming down from the altar into the fellowship hall? Uh, the red carpet has nothing to do with the blood of Christ, if that's what you think. No, but, well, but I'll tell you it's a why. symbol. It's I'll, another... Yeah, but, but carpet does not belong in the church. The choirs that we have here would not sound as good with absorbent material, particularly down the axis. So our axis is reflective material. And if I turn off my microphone up here, do you notice how you can hear up here? That's part, and I'll keep talking the same sort of way. It is not as loud over here as it is up there. But when I'm speaking up here in the center, it's very important that the axis have reflective material in it. 
Okay. Well, I guess I was referring to other churches that have changed it to tans and browns and. It's. <laughs> as far as our cushions, you know, our cushions on the seat roughly take the place of bodies on the seat. And I know you never, ever spill our Lord's body of blood. But there is that challenge when you have carpet. That's true. That's true. It's much easier.